This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. Season one features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jimi Hendrix. The 27 Club contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. Late last year, we did an episode on the great historical finds of 2010. And shortly after that episode published, Anne from St. Louis emailed in a suggestion. And this is what she said. She said, while pretty much everyone knows about the astronomical and cultural sophistication of the Maya, the Mississippian civilization seemed to be forgotten and rarely mentioned in history classes, which is a shame. I wonder if you'd consider doing an episode on Cahokia or your favorite other Mississippian site. Fortunately, I hadn't missed Cahokia entirely. I don't remember learning about it in history class, but right before Anne emailed, actually, there was a National Geographic article that had just published with pictures on the settlement and lots of information about its history. And in part, the article focused on how such an important cultural center had been brushed aside and practically forgotten for centuries. Yeah, not to mention bulldozed over in some cases. Yeah, but we're going to try to stop that from happening. We're going to try to at least introduce Cahokia to those of you who haven't heard about it before. We're going to talk about the culture and the city and the archaeological efforts to better understand the people who live there and the reasons why they disappear. There's kind of a mystery behind the whole thing, too. But first, we want to look into who were these Mississippians anyway? Around the year 700 AD, a new kind of culture popped up in the the Mississippi Valley. Scholars differ on their ideas, though, of where exactly it came from. Some think that it was the influence from northern Mexico, which introduced a new agricultural techniques and religious practices. Others think it was simply a major major climate change for the better, combined with new ways of thinking. Yeah, but regardless, the culture quickly spread throughout the American Midwest and the Southeast. And though Mississippian settlements were different, they'd have different styles of homes and different styles of pottery, different arrowhead shapes. They did have a few things in common. One of those was an economy based on corn. And the other was a religion based on the sun. But they're also often defined by earthen flat top mounds. And we have some of those mounds here in Etowah. I think I visited maybe in fourth grade or so. And you can go walk around the mounds and and check them out. They're pretty 
grass-covered hills, it looks like today, thousands of years later. But the civilization in Cahokia, which is what is today Collinsville, Illinois, just east of St. Louis, took mound building to a whole new level, as, as we're going to find out soon. So how did this civilization, the city, begin? Well, late woodland people probably first started seriously settling the area around 700 A.D. It was prime real estate here in what was known as the American Bottom, a floodplain of the Mississippi River. In this area, there were three rivers, the Mississippi, the Missouri, and the Illinois, and three ecosystems, the Ozark Mountains, the Prairie, and the Eastern Woodlands. Yeah, so that provided the opportunity to grow a lot of different kinds of crops and it attracted a lot of different kinds of animals. So it was a good living if, if you could, if you could settle there. And people would have grown things like squash and pumpkins and sunflowers and plus they would have eaten a lot of fish and they would have been able to travel easily on some of those smaller tributaries. But like later Mississippian cultures, the economy was based on corn. That was the, the bread and butter for, for the Cahokian people. And two things Things made this crop really successful at the time. One was the development of the flint hoe, which made farming easier. And then the other was a particularly nice climate for a few hundred years there. And as production grew, towns started to form. And all of this food, all of the surplus food, meant that time and resources could be devoted to something other than agriculture, something more, more advanced. They could make crafts and they could stockpile grain and trade with other areas. And, and those crafts and that surplus corn meant that the people at Cahokia traded with tribes all over the Midwest and East. They, archaeologists have found shells from the Gulf, copper from the Upper Great Lakes, mica from Southern Appalachia. And bountiful crops also left time for massive building projects and the organizational infrastructure that was really needed to execute these projects. Yeah, so that's where Cahokia comes in. It's a planned city. It's laid out into zones for administration, ceremony, elite homes, regular neighborhoods, suburbs. The large cornfields would have been outside of the city on the floodplain, along with some smaller settlements, while private homes would have kept gardens. Eventually, this settlement grew to cover 4,000 acres, and it contained 120 mounds. Seventy are still preserved today. Some of them were flat-topped mounds, which were often terraced and topped with important buildings, and others were conical burial mounds. Yeah, and just the logistics of these earthen mounds and building them is, is really hard to fathom, since we are so used to heavy machinery being used for all excavation and building projects. But there were no means of moving earth other than carrying baskets gets full of it that would weigh about 50 to 60 pounds. And so the earth would come from borrow pits. They would carry the baskets to the mounds under construction. And archaeologists estimate that the site's largest mound, which is called Monk's Mound, took 15 million baskets of earth to build over a period of, of hundreds of years, probably. I mean, this these weren't projects that went up in, in a few weeks or months. Right. And before you connect Monk's Mound to some ancient religion, it was actually named for French Trappist monks who gardened there in the 1800s. But regardless, it's definitely the site's most impressive feature. Just a few details about it. It's the largest man-made earthen mound in North America. Its footprint is bigger than that of the largest of the Great Pyramids. And the chief would have lived or operated from its peak and had full command of the land as far as the eye could see. Yeah, but the plaza that contained the principal mounds is also really amazing. It was artificially raised and leveled. It's 40 acres, which is equivalent to 45 football fields. That'll at least help out 
those of you from North America, I guess. And it would have had room for marketplaces and ceremonial sites and playing fields. So really the, the center of the city. And the whole plaza wasn't just left out on the open plains, though, for, for anybody to come and sack. It was surrounded by a log stockade that was two miles long. And the temples and most of the elite homes would have been built inside of that stockade protection. There's also evidence of human sacrifice there at Mound 72, where there are remains of 53 women, four guys that look like they were possibly executed, and one very elite man who was surrounded by 20,000 shell beads arranged like a falcon. Yeah, and then there are also some remains of five large wood henges, and we're going to talk about them a little bit more later. They were made from red cedar, which was considered a sacred wood, and they lined up with the rising sun at different times of the year. And I think this is what made Anne suggest this topic in the first place, because we had mentioned the, the wood henge and Stonehenge, the Woodhenge at Stonehenge in our historical finds podcast. But the growth of the city around 1050 is the really stunning thing about this story. Archaeologists call it the Big Bang because it just seems like a boom town, like what we're used to in the the Wild West, a, a town popping up overnight, essentially. Yeah, it was marked with the formation of a complex chiefdom, new house styles, new arrow styles, new types of pottery, just a cultural explosion. And just 100 years after that cultural explosion, an estimated 20,000 people were living in Cahokia, which makes it bigger than London at the time. I feel like that comparison to London keeps on popping up in in podcasts from around the world. Yeah. Interestingly, though, not all archaeologists really agree on the size of Cahokia and its influence on the rest of Mississippian culture. One thing they can agree on, though, is that by about 1250, the city started to decline. And it was a really slow decline. It wasn't like some epidemic wiped out all 20,000 people. But by 1400, it was abandoned. And we have to ask, why? How did that happen? It's possible that there was some sort of climatic change, that the climate got cooler and drier, and just that little bit of difference in the corn yield was enough to make the city and its large population unsupportable. It might have brought the boom years to an end, but there might have been other factors too, and and these aren't mutually exclusive. It's not as though if you discount one, you, you can't accept the other. There might have been outbreaks of disease or warfare. For instance, between 1175 and 1275, the stockades were rebuilt several times, suggesting there was some kind of trouble going on outside of Cahokia. There might have been environmental degradation, too, because it was such a large settlement. They were using a lot of wood for fuel and construction. They were farming so heavily. There might have been agricultural effects, runoff, erosion, that type of thing. And there might have just been some kind of internal struggle. You know, the leader is no longer accepted or just problems inside of the city. Right. So with one or some combination of all of those factors, by the time European settlers arrived, the original Cahokian inhabitants were long gone from the area. In fact, Cahokia is not actually a name connected to the people who built the mounds. Which probably comes as a surprise. Yeah, they left no written language, so it instead comes from a sub-tribe whose name meant wild geese that lived there in the 1600s. They were members of the Illinois Confederacy. So a much later group of, of Native Americans who lived there. But regardless of, of who these people really were, the mounds that they left behind were definitely stunning. So stunning, in fact, that settlers didn't think that they could have been built by Native Americans. People thought that maybe 
maybe Phoenicians had been here and, and they had built the mounds or a tribe of Israel or Vikings. So all sorts of pretty wild out there ideas rather than just saying it must have been some native people from a long time ago who built these. The first guy to write a report of the site was someone named Henry Brackenridge. He was out exploring the prairie in 1811 and he was really impressed by what he saw. He said, I was struck with a degree of astonishment, not unlike which is experienced in contemplating Egyptian pyramids. What a tremendous pile of earth. But it seemed like other people didn't really care. You know, he published this report. It didn't get a big response. He finally got a little bit of a response from President Thomas Jefferson, but later administrations really ignored the site, and that's partly because it didn't jive with ideas held at the time about Indians, ideas that were crucial to relocating them westward, like that they were nomads, they weren't good stewards of the land. Having this massive city and evidence of people living in this settled city for hundreds of years just didn't fit with the the announcement that was going out. Yeah, and because this information was brushed aside, basically, Monk's Mound wasn't actually preserved until 1925. And even then, it was just preserved as a place to sled, basically yeah. a park. And a lot of other nearby mounds were torn down. Uh, at Cahokia, the site's second largest mound was raised for fill dirt by horseradish farmers in 1931. And later, the site held a gambling hall, a subdivision, an airfield, a pornographic drive-in at various points. So clearly not much respect for the historical importance of it. It wasn't until the 1960s, ironically, that the interstate highway program threatening to tear through the plaza, launched a real big archaeological study of Cahokia. And that's when researchers made the discovery that this wasn't just a collection of mounds that served some sort of ceremonial purpose. There was a big city that had been here. They found evidence of homes and pottery and trade and and things that suggested it was a lot more than, than they had thought. Yeah, and a Dr. Warren Whitry also theorized that the Woodhenge was a calendar, arcs of circles with wooden posts set up to line with the rising sun at certain times of the year. So what we're looking at may be America's first city. Yeah, it's it's generally considered to be North America's first city. And now it's only one of eight UNESCO World Heritage Cultural Sites in the United States. I, I checked out the list to see what some of the others are. And they include Independence Hall and the Statue of Liberty and Monticello, places that receive so many visitors every year, yet this place is, is still largely unknown. But just because Cahokia died out in 1400 doesn't mean that other Mississippian cultures went the same way. Others continued to thrive until DeSoto's arrival in Tampa in 1539, when unfortunately after that, many of them were killed off by disease or driven off their land. One notable exception is the Natchez people. They lasted well into the 1700s, and I think were eventually relocated located further out west where where their culture still lasts today. But after learning about Cahokia, I, I really want to go visit it and, and check it out myself. Yeah, it's kind of sad. We talk about these fascinating places and people every week, and we so rarely go to them. We so rarely get to visit them. But as you'll find with the listener mail we've picked for this week, our listeners are a little luckier. We have been delighted in the last couple of weeks to start receiving several postcards from listener Jesse, who is touring Europe right now and 
telling us all about it. So I'm just going to read one of her, her first postcards. Postcard. Yep. She says, Dear Sarah and Dublina, Hello, I am Jesse. I just finished grad school at Dartmouth, and I'm taking a grand tour a la Lord Byron, though not as well-funded, around Europe. 14 countries in two months. I start my travels in France, where I've been re-listening to your Catherine de' Medici podcasts. I'm currently listening to The Green Gallant while sunning myself along the Parisians in the Tuileries Garden. Life is good. And she goes on to tell us that she is heading to the Balkans towards the end of her trip and, um, you know, a little bit more about the podcast. But we've gotten a bunch of postcards from her. It's pretty cool. I, we got one from Versailles today, one from Amsterdam, a few from Germany. She went to see Ludwig's Bavarian castles and had lunch on the cathedral steps at Cologne, all sorts of awesome sounding things. Yeah, we're totally jealous. And I love this note that she put at the bottom of her first postcard. She says, P.S. Sorry about the spelling. I'm a physics and engineering major. No worries. No worries. We have a love for history. <laughs> I know. We I love mean, it, Jesse. You're sending us international postcards. We we love it. But I think this is the first time we've gotten this series of them from somebody's grand tour. So it's pretty exciting. And I posted uh, the first batch we got on Facebook and Twitter at Missed in History the other day. So you guys can live vicariously, too. Yeah. And if you have any more stories of your own travels and how you have connected some information in our podcast to them, please write us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com or Sarah just mentioned looking us up on Twitter at Missed in History or on Facebook. And if you want to learn a little bit more about Native American culture, we have an article called Were the Clovis the First American? So you just learned about the first American city in the podcast. You can go read about the potential first American culture in an article by searching for Clovis on our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join House to Fork staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The House to Fork's iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Duman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 27 Club is a new podcast about famous musicians who died prematurely and sometimes mysteriously at the age of 27. This podcast is hosted by me, Jake Brennan, creator and host of the hit music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland. Season one features 12 episodes on the life and death of Jimi Hendrix. The 27 Club contains adult content and explicit language. You can listen to The 27 Club on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Watch out for your ears.